was something more. He was more than a man. His birth was like every other birth, and it was like no other birth. Uh, He is and was uh, the God-man, fully God, a fully human being. And today we're going to take a look uh, at that familiar passage uh, of his birth. His birth uh, was the central thing that has happened in the history of the world. Uh, his birth, his death, his, his, his resurrection, he is the central figure in all of history. He's also uh, my Redeemer and my Savior and my Lord. He's the sustainer and the creator of the universe, but he also knows us intimately and personally. And so uh, as we go back in time, uh, one of the things that uh, this guy, uh, Pope John I, uh, this isn't the greatest uh, picture of him here, uh, by the way, not very flattering, but as we go back in time, uh, Pope John I uh, thought that we needed a different metric by which we keep track of time. We needed a new calendar. And so about 500 years after uh, the birth of Jesus, uh, Pope John I asked Dionysius, a Scythian monk, to prepare a standard calendar for the Western Church. Dionysius modified the Alexandrian system of dating, which was used as its base, which used as its base the reign of Diocletian, for he did not want the years of history to be reckoned from the life of a persecutor of the church, but from the incarnation of Christ. He wanted all of time, the metric that we use to measure time, to begin with the birth of Christ. So the commencement of the Christian era was January 1st, 754, Anno Urbis Condite, from the foundation of the city of Rome. And Christ's birth was thought to have been on December 25th, immediately preceding. So 754 AUC became AD 1 in the calendar of Dionysius. And so we have the birth of Christ from this point in history until today, in large part throughout the world, uh, his birth is, is written everywhere. Every time we, we write a letter, every time we send an email, every time we record something, it is going back to the birth of Jesus Christ. He is the central figure in all of history. And he's the savior of my life. And he is my Lord and Master. Is he your Lord and Master today? Say amen if he is. I love the fact that people, whether they are believers or unbelievers or Muslims or New Age or whatever, they acknowledge every time they write the date, the birth of our Savior and our King. And the reason that this calendar has continued and is used in large part throughout the world is because that Jesus is King and Lord. Uh, This this calendar, I do not believe, is going away. Well, as I said today, we're going to look at this account that has been read uh, of the birth of Christ. It's a passage that we are all familiar with. 
perhaps uh, even uh, too familiar with. Sometimes we get too familiar with a passage and we need to, to have fresh eyes to see uh, that again. And as I alluded to earlier in the service, uh, during this uh, Christmas season, uh, we can often have dominant in our minds and in our hearts uh, the celebrations and the candles and the presents and the family and all of these great things. But we want to hear from the Lord today about Jesus and hear from him from his word, what he would have for us this Christmas uh, season. We want to move beyond warm sentiments as we think about the spirit of Christmas. Uh, J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, uh, says this about the spirit of Christmas. He says the spirit, uh, the Christmas spirit, is the spirit of those who, like their master, live their whole lives on the principle of making themselves poor, spending and being spent to enrich their fellow men, giving time, trouble, care, and concern to do good to others and not just their own friends in whatever way there seems to be need. So the reality of of what the Christmas spirit really is biblically, we want to have all the celebrations, we want to have all these times with family, but the Christmas spirit involves you and I becoming poor in spirit so that we can become rich in Jesus and depend upon him to give us joy and the energy to love others and pour ourselves out uh, in in ways that show love to others. So what I want to do that we did just a a few weeks ago is I want to pray once again before we get into the word. I want to pray Psalm 119.18. And uh, thank you, Steve, for praying for us. But let's bow our heads and just pray one more time and pray for God to uh, speak to us today. Uh, Father in heaven, we ask... Uh, that you would open the eyes of our hearts. We pray that we would see wonderful things in your law, in your word, in this very familiar passage about the birth of Jesus. We pray that you would change us today, that, that we would not merely hear the word, but that we would be doers of the word. I ask that the Holy Spirit would, would work in ways that are above and beyond the way any man or any preacher could prepare. And we thank you for the birth of Christ and for the word of God. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so you should be in Luke chapter 2. If you're not there, go ahead and turn uh, to Luke 2. And we're going to look just at these first seven verses today. And today, for the first time, I'm going to use these things. They're very familiar to uh, many of you, but I have not used these before. Uh, Here we go. Here we go. Okay. Yeah drawing attention to myself here, but I had to say something, otherwise I was just going to kind of freak out putting these things on. <laughs> Let's look at Luke 2, 1 through 7. I'm going to have three, uh, three points today, and the first one's coming out of verses 1 through 4. Uh, Luke 2, 1 through 4. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree, a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. So as we come to this passage, as we come to Luke 2, what Luke is doing 
you all get blurry if I keep these things on. So I've got to take them off. Uh, this, this is a new thing. So uh, bear with me here. As, as we come to Luke 2, uh, we see Luke is giving us a reason for why Joseph has moved from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Why has he made this journey? Why is he going there? This is the question that Luke is answering. And if you look at verse 1, it says that this decree has gone out, or the Greek word there is dogma. This decree or dogma has gone out from Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus is the great nephew of Julius Caesar. Uh, Caesar, of course, is a title like king or coach. And so we have this man who was formerly known as Octavian, uh, and he has made this decree uh, for everyone to return to their hometowns for the purposes of taxation. So what we have here is basically uh, tax day. We have uh, April 15th, right? Is that our tax day? I always try to do mine early, so I don't need to know what uh, date it is. But uh, it, we have basically tax day happening, and this decree has gone out, and everyone has to return to their hometown. And so this is what is going to bring Joseph from Nazareth, his hometown, to, uh, to Bethlehem. Uh, it says uh, in verse 4 uh, that Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. So Joseph himself is part of this line and part of uh, this heritage of David, the line that Jesus is also in. So why, why this journey is happening is because of taxes. We don't have any indication that Joseph is aware of the prophecies in the Old Testament that the Savior, the Messiah, the one who is coming, was going to be born there. He may or may not know, but what Luke is telling us, that the occasion for this journey is, is taxes. Now we know from uh, the Old Testament that this was prophesied centuries beforehand. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, uh, that's the old, uh, the old word for Bethlehem, the full uh, title there. Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient, uh, from ancient times. And so we should be seeing here in, in these first few verses of, uh, of Luke, Uh, we should be seeing the sovereign hand of God at work. We know the Old Testament. We know the Savior is going to be coming from Bethlehem. How is this going to come about? He used tax day to get him there. And we should be seeing the mysterious sovereignty of God, of how he works things out, all according to his will here. Uh, Matthew Henry writes this. He says, See how man purposes and God disposes. And how providence orders all things for the fulfilling of the scripture and makes use of the projects men have for serving their own purposes. Uh, This guy, this Caesar, this Octavius, he has a purpose for taxation, but God has a greater and bigger purpose quite beyond uh, his intention to serve his, to serve the Lord's intention. So we should see the sovereign hand of God here in these first few verses. We should also see a man who is willing to be obedient. 
uh, in the small things, the seemingly small things of life, to travel, uh, to register for taxation for the Roman Empire. So the first point, the first thing I want us to really hear out of these first four verses is that God is looking for you and for me this Christmas season uh, in the spirit of Christmas to be obedient in seemingly small things in life. God often takes the small acts of obedience that his children have and do and he uses them to expand his kingdom in mighty and significant ways. We have a history of lots of Lots of people throughout Scripture and throughout church history who have been obedient in small ways, and then God has used them in mighty and significant ways to expand his kingdom. I think of of Daniel, Uh, Daniel being taken into captivity there, and uh, the king is wanting to trade him, uh, train him up, the Babylonian king, wanting him to eat this wonderful food and do all of these things. Uh, He's wanting uh, Daniel to eat five-course meals and have all of the fancy food, but a very seemingly small thing. Dave, uh, Daniel wants to be devoted and honor his God by refraining from this kind of food. He's afraid probably that it's maybe sacrificed to idols or he's going to uh, dishonor the uh, dietary regulations in the Old Testament. So he refuses. He refuses to eat this splendid, splendid meals, this wonderful food. We have a lot of foodies in this church. How many of you, raise your hand, I know there's a, a lot of you. We have a lot of foodies. We have a lot of people who would love to have the kinds of meals that Daniel, uh, that were prepared for him, uh, to make him robust and strong and intellect and embody, but he, he refused those things. And we see in verse 9 of Daniel 1 that God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of of the commander of the officials. And Daniel goes on to do uh, significant things and is a hero of the faith for us. He is looking for us to, to be obedient in the very small things of life. Uh, this, is, this is part of what we need to see in these first uh, four verses of Luke chapter 1. Small acts of obedience often lead to big advancements in the kingdom of God. This is where we live our daily life in doing these small things. And Joseph here, in these first four verses, we see he is, he is just willing to go and, and pay his taxes and travel uh, to Bethlehem, even though this is not a very good time. Uh, the angel, Gabriel, has just spoken uh, to uh, Mary, and the angel has also spoken to, uh, to Joseph. Uh, we, we heard about this last week and, and some the previous week. He knows that his wife is, is, is going to not only give birth, but she's going to give birth to the Savior of the world, to the, to the Messiah. And yet, Joseph is, is willing to go. Let's take a look at, at verse 5. Verse 5, he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now, in those days... It would not have been customary to bring your wife uh, to one of these, uh, one of these uh, tax days to, to travel this journey. It would have been customary for the father to go, but not for the wife to go. And so we're told here very significantly in verse 5 that he went with Mary. He was pledged uh, to be married. Uh, who, she was pledged to be married to him and was expecting uh, a child. So they make this journey. Uh, it's about a thousand feet elevation difference from 
Nazareth uh, to Bethlehem, uh, but it's, uh, which is about the elevation difference between here and, and Colfax, but it's a much further journey. Most likely, uh, being Jews, they would have avoided Samaria. They would have taken the long route uh, to get there. And so it would have taken them uh, approximately uh, four to seven days traveling by foot, traveling by donkey, to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem, about a 1,000 feet elevation game. I plugged it into uh, to Google Earth, uh, and Google Earth said it would take 33 hours to walk in the most direct line from, uh, from Nazareth to Bethlehem. So we have a poor couple. About, she's about to give birth uh, to the Savior of the world. We don't know how far along she is, but as we read verses 1 through 7, I think we get the uh, impression that she's very near, uh, near her due date. I'm thinking she's in her 7th, 8th, perhaps just even days or weeks away from giving birth. And they uh, are, are going to travel uh, what we would call a backpacking trip, uh, four to seven days by foot, by donkey, to pay their taxes, to register, to do seemingly a small thing uh, for uh, the glory of God. What the Lord wants us to see here in these couple of verses is that God uh, is looking for us often to do hard things uh, to bring him glory. Uh, he, he, he often is, uh, is, is looking uh, for us to do hard things for his glory. This is a challenging thing, this journey. It's physically challenging. It's emotionally challenging. It's spiritually challenging. Uh, can you imagine uh, something like uh, thinking like this, you know, um, Maybe we can file for an extension uh, for this. Uh, We've never done this before. Uh, You're an upright man, Joseph. Or Joseph himself might be thinking, maybe we can can register late. Uh, He's not that kind of man. He is headed to Bethlehem. This is what the law is expecting of him, the Roman law. And he is just deciding to go. The Christmas story, the spirit of Christmas, uh, has to do with us making ourselves poor so that we would serve others, which often involves doing hard things, hard things that bring glory to God. Physically hard things, spiritually hard things, emotionally hard things. Some of you may have seen uh, in the news in the last few months uh, this case of... uh, what is this guy's name again here? Bolger, Whitey Bolger. Have you heard about this guy? Uh, Whitey Bolger uh, was arrested in June 2011. He was hiding in plain sight in Santa Monica, living in an apartment there. He had suitcases full of cash. He was an Irish mobster who had been on the FBI's uh, 10 most wanted list for decades. They hadn't been able to find this guy. You've probably saw it in the news. They found him. They arrested him. They have a trial and they have a sentencing. I'm not too familiar with all of the courts and the law and how these things work. But it was interesting to me that they have a a day uh, for victims uh, to come in and speak to him just prior to sentencing. Victims of families, uh, 
victims, uh, survivors of victims of people that he has murdered and tortured as he was a, a, um, an organized crime in Boston uh, decades ago. They call them victim impact statements. And I want you to hear a little bit about how this day went. This is an opportunity our justice system has for, for victims, families, for survivors to come and speak to the one who brought this great injustice into their lives face to face. This is from the New York Times. It says, David Wheeler stood in the well of a federal courtroom here Wednesday, gesturing toward James Whitey Bolger. That's when this uh, picture was drawn uh, that day. Uh, The elderly man who was once the overlord of the Boston underworld and who had ordered his his father's murder. Shame on you, Mr. Bolger, Mr. Wheeler declared. For all your notoriety, you are a punk and you don't even matter anymore. You've turned from a government-sponsored assassin to a pile of jailhouse rags. The article goes on. Many of the impact statements were heartfelt, showing little sympathy for Bolger, 84 years old, and often often wishing ill upon him. Words like rat, sociopath, and Satan were used, while others said Bolger brought shame upon the Irish for his actions as a gang lord. I'd like to strangle him myself. I'm sitting here with the anger and this uh, expletive, This won't look at me, said Steve Davis, brother of Debbie Davis, who uh, was strangled to death by Bolger. And so it went for 90 minutes at Mr. Bolger's sentencing hearing, which followed his conviction in August for 11 murders and multiple racketeering charges, one after the other, grieving widows and fatherless children, now in middle age, stepped forward to curse the man who had robbed them of their loved ones, others to describe the holes that were suddenly left in their lives. We were a happy, loving family with hopes and dreams, and he was the soul of our family, said Patricia Donahue, whose husband Michael was an innocent bystander when he was gunned down. Then on May 11, 1982, a complete stranger named Whitey Bulger crossed our paths, and everything we knew was gone in the blink of an eye. And this article goes on and on describing how these people uh, get up there and yell and curse and cry and weep and, and just display anger at him. And then there's a shift in the courtroom that day. There's a woman who comes up there named Teresa Bond, whose father, Arthur Barrett, who uh, in another place in the article describes that Arthur Barrett was skilled at opening safes when he didn't know the combination to those safes. He was very skilled at opening them. So her, her father, this man who was shot in the head by Mr. Bolger, uh, I'm sorry, his daughter, Teresa Bond, uh, comes into the courtroom, comes up into the stand uh, for her opportunity to follow in this sequence of people who are just laying into him with anger and frustration. She surprised many in the courtroom and overflow rooms with her comments on forgiveness. Could you please look at me? She asked quietly as she began. 
He barely raised his head. I don't hate you, she said. She asked whether he had remorse for taking her father's life, but she didn't seem to expect an answer, nor did he give one. I think you do, she concluded. I think you do, and I forgive you. And she sits down. She suffered the same kind of pain and emotion and trauma and loss and grief that all of these others uh, have suffered. But she decided to do something differently. She decided to do something that was very hard for the glory of God. She decided to show him grace. He didn't deserve to say, I forgive you. He didn't deserve to hear those words. But she is demonstrating gospel love there when she says that. I forgive you. The Puritans had a a, a term called gospel holiness. And they distinguished between ethics and, and doing the right thing. You know, giving the, someone gives you too much change, you, get, you give it back. That's just an ethical, a right thing to do. They distinguished between that and, and gospel holiness. Where when we live out our lives, we live out our lives in such a way to display the gospel of Jesus. He demonstrated his own love for us while we were still sinners. He died for us and he forgave us. And we are called to demonstrate that with our words. And he gave this woman the courage to go in there and to speak to this man who did wicked and terrible and evil things and to describe the gospel and to show, uh, to display the gospel and to show forgiveness to him. Uh, Mary and Joseph, very different situation But coming back to the text, they have a long journey. They have a difficult journey. And they are being faithful in this small thing of of going to register for tax day. And God is getting massive glory from what uh, they have done. Again, we see his sovereignty at work here uh, in verse 5. That the Christmas story is calling Christians to do hard things for uh, the glory of God. So I want to ask you. Uh, today, what the Lord may be calling you to do this Christmas season. What does it mean to live out the Christmas spirit? We're we're wanting to move beyond sentimentality and beyond the the fun times and the friendly times, which I am all for with our families. And we want to display a gospel kind of holiness this Christmas. We want to do hard things. We want to become poor in our own spirits and rich in Christ and in the gospel so that we can love others. That is what the Christmas spirit looks like. Biblically, this is part of what he wants us to see in this text, that they're traveling four to seven days. Uh, They're they're, they're traveling about 90 miles going around Samaria to come to this place, to come to Bethlehem uh, for the baby uh, to be born. Let's look look at these last uh, couple verses, uh, verses 6 and 7. While they were there, while they are in Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them uh, in the inn. Verse, uh, the, the way this verse begins, again, the, the sovereignty of God is emphasized. While they were there, 
Uh, it's as though they're just following this simple duty of, of going there for tax day. And while they were there, the time came for this baby to be born that they are expecting. And they know that this baby is like no other baby in history. They know this because the angels have spoken to both of them. It came to be time for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. Perhaps an allusion here to the other children that Mary would birth later. We're told their names in Matthew 13 and in John chapter 7. But this is the firstborn. This is a a virginal conception, which we heard about last week. The Holy Spirit has done this great and beautiful and miraculous thing. And while they happen to be in Bethlehem is when this birth came about. The sovereignty of God is speaking to us here. She wrapped him in cloths, it says in verse 7. Now there's no obstetrician here. Uh, The she here is referring to Mary. There, there is no midwife there. We have a picture here in verses 1 through 7 of Mary and Joseph alone with the Savior of the world being born. She wrapped him in cloths, not the midwife, and she placed him in a manger, it says in verse 7. That word manger has probably become a little too domesticated for us. It's become too Christmassy. Uh, we, we should probably hear their feeding trough. I know a lot of you have uh, animals. How many of you have cows, horses, something like that? Raise your hand. Some, uh, you guys awake out there today? Uh, that's what we should have in our minds. Th- this baby is being placed in the location where those of you who have horses and cows, where you put your feed in that, that feeding trough that's up off of the ground that, 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 that's there in, in, in ancient uh, Middle East, this would have been stone. There wasn't a, a lot of wood things built then. This would have been a stone feeding trough for animals that the Savior of the world is placed in by Mary. The uh, Christmas story here in Luke 1-7 through 7 is calling us, my second point was to do hard things for the glory of God. My third point is what we have here is an unwelcome situation in life. This is an unwelcome situation in life, journeying to Bethlehem. We're told here at the, ver- at the end of verse 7, there was no room for them in the inn. Again, this has become a Christmas-sized, a domesticized word in. We should, we should read here, uh, the public house where poor people would stay was full. And so this is not the situation that moms want, any mom wants to give birth in. They've traveled all the way to Bethlehem because it's tax day. The house where poor people would stay, this was not the Ritz-Carlton. There's no innkeeper mentioned here. It was just simply full. There would be a house in these communities that would be known to the people. If you're traveling through and you need a place to stay, here's where you would go if you didn't have a lot of means. And that place was full. And so Mary and Joseph uh, end up in a place where barn and farm animals are. Uh, Justin Martyr uh, 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 writes this uh, way back, not long after the time of the apostles. He wrote, When the child was born in Bethlehem, since Joseph could not find a lodging in that village, he took up his quarters in a certain cave near the village. 
And so although the Bible doesn't tell us that they were in a cave, most likely tradition and church history tells us that this feeding trough and this barn, as we think of it, wasn't a barn like we would construct, but it was a cave, most likely. Mary and Joseph are alone. The, the public house where poor people would stay was filled. And the birth of Jesus takes place uh, in a cave. Some of you have uh, seen the uh, 2006 movie, The Nativity Story. I think they largely get it right here, at least in this image. We've, we've got no uh, obstetrician, no midwife. Mary herself wraps the baby with cloths. And we have the Savior of the world born in a stable, in a cave, in Bethlehem because of tax day. God is saying to us today that there are often unwelcome situations uh, in our lives. And we need wisdom because sometimes we, we want to get out of those unwelcome situations, right? One of the primary things we need in the Christian life is wisdom. So sometimes we need to get out. Whatever God has sovereignly allowed in my life, sometimes I need to fight and I need to get out of this. But other times, and this is the situation here, we need to simply humbly accept what is going on. And recognize and trust God that he has a plan and a purpose, which he certainly does here in this situation. And he does in my life and he does in your life. And he's looking for us to simply and humbly accept the situation that we're in. And that we will bring glory to him, not in a way that we had chosen, but in a way that he has allowed in our lives. That is the situation for Mary and Joseph. This is what he is calling us to this Christmas season. He's calling us to bring glory to him and to serve him by emptying ourselves, by serving others, welcoming unwelcome situations in our lives, humbly accepting them, knowing that he's going to want to work that for his glory. That's what he's after. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the many people throughout Scripture and throughout church history who through small acts of obedience have done great and advancing things for the kingdom of God. We're thankful, God, for this journey that was taken by Mary and by Joseph. And we recognize that you often call us to do hard things in life. Lord, I believe there are some of us here today where you have been prompting us to do something that's difficult, that is hard. Perhaps it's sharing the gospel with a neighbor. Perhaps it's, it's being more faithful as a parent, as, as being in the word of God more faithfully. Whatever the difficult thing is, Lord, we are asking that you would give us the ability to do hard things this Christmas season and that we would bring lots of glory to you. Lord, some of us here today, we've got situations going on in our lives that are very unwelcome. We do not like what, what, we are, what is going on in our lives. And Lord, some of us need to humbly trust you and faithfully seek your face in the midst of this unwelcome situation and know that you want to work it for good. So help us to trust you. Lord, help us to love you, to seek you, and to know you this Christmas season. May we have the Spirit of Christ in us. We ask it in Jesus' name.
Amen.